1: wherever you get your podcasts. Hello, and welcome to BioEats World, a podcast at the intersection of bio, healthcare, and tech. I'm Olivia. And I'm Chris. Today's episode features Aviv Regev, currently the head and executive VP of Genentech Research and Early Development. Aviv is also the founding co-chair of the Human Cell Atlas. She is joined by Vijay Pandey of Bio and Health. Aviv chatted with Bj about her background, how her love of both abstractions and details led her to biology, and how CRISPR really set the field into motion. When you can do things at scale
2: and you have the tools you can iterate, and iteration is really the, the, the heart of the game. So it takes, it takes years for all of these things to fully materialize. And what was really fun for
1: me is that I got to say, yeah, that's what I wanted all along. Now I'm just going to go and do it. Aviv is also a renowned expert on AI and gives us insight into how AI could really transform the process of biological and medical discovery.
2: We're going to get a really good sense of what cells are there. And we would make it into something we used to call it like a periodic table of the cell, like a nickname, so that it wouldn't just be that we would be able to say, here are all the things we measured, here's the catalog. We would be able to predict things that we haven't seen. And foundational models, that's what they let you do. They don't just define the realm of what you've done But they actually let you say within what you've done and ideally out of distribution, this is what I think should be there. Here are the holes that I can fill for you, not just by measuring everything yourself. So that's to me like the pinnacle. You're listening to BioEats
1: World from A16Z.
0: Aviv, thank you so much for joining us on BioEats World.
1: Thanks,
2: Vijay, for having me.
0: I'd love to get a sense for what got you excited about this space.
2: It's everything I love. I love concepts and abstractions, and I love details and stories at the same time. My first or second year as an undergrad by that point, that there was a huge gap between these two worldviews, and there wasn't anything in the middle. There wasn't a world where you took like this principled, mathematical, either by inference or by forward modeling that you have in genetics and evolutionary biology really a real theoretical foundation of biology is really the modern synthesis, genetics, and evolution. And on the other side, there is like all this mess, but this gorgeous, beautiful mess, which is the essence of biology as well. But there wasn't a world in between them. And at that point, I know exactly when this happened to me. I was walking down a particular lane in the campus in Tel Aviv University. And I was like, that's what I want to do. And it's still what I'm doing today. I'm like one of those lucky people. Figured out what they want to do and then actually got to do it.
0: Wow. Wow. Yeah.
2: That's how I ended up doing computational biology. I still do it today. And the problem is still not solved.
0: So, somewhere on the middle of the way, you, you get to the Broad as a professor, the Broad and MIT. Yeah. And like, what was that experience like? And especially the Broad is in many ways different than a typical sort of academic environment.
2: Yeah. So, I was the first actually faculty recruited into the Broad. I wasn't wow. the first faculty at the Broad. There were four founders but I was the first person to be recruited there. So, you know, when when you come early to a place, it's not exactly itself yet. It gets formed and you get to participate in forming it. But broadly speaking, the Broad is a very unusual institute. It belongs actually to two universities and five hospitals, Harvard, MIT, and five Harvard hospitals. And it is really there in order to bridge two worlds. The world of... Free-floating, individual lab-based academic research, a model that has existed since the Middle Ages and is still incredibly successful at promoting innovation, and the scale that is needed in order to solve certain big problems in biology and in medicine, more similar to what we see often in, in companies, in industry, and operating together. There wasn't the one or the other. It's not that one is more important than the other, and there were tons of tensions. There still are, and the tensions are good. These tensions between the two parts is actually what makes the magic and you're not supposed to resolve them. You're supposed to live in tension and in this way, build things that are different. Similar to the original tension I described between the generalizations and abstractions and the fine details.
0: It's almost like great relationships or, or marriage. It's yes. the, the two sides and uh, help pull you to the truth, to the right answer. Yeah. While you were there, it was such a historic time for biology and for computational biology. You know, you think about CRISPR and single cell profiling, you know, as two examples. And at the same time, what's amazing is that there's this huge revolution in biology, but there are also then this revolution on the computational side. How is that intertwined? And, you know, you were very much a pioneer in these areas. What was that like at that time? For
2: people like me, and definitely for me personally, probably the two years of 2011 and 2012 were some of the absolutely best moment. And we're now starting to really like get the full benefit of it, but it's, it's an exhilarating ride when, when stuff happens like that, especially if you get to actually contribute to it. And I would, I would actually enumerate three major things. The first one was the ability to perturb cells. I mean, I care about how cells operate individually and in organisms, in tissues and organs and beyond. I cared about that since I was this, you know, kid undergraduate and just felt there was a gap there. So I still care about it now. The ability to perturb the system is absolutely essential. It's it's not that it wasn't possible before CRISPR. That would be absolutely wrong to say. But it all of a sudden became precise and scaled at a new scale. The second one was the ability to characterize cells genomically at the individual cell level, first in dissociated cells and then spatially, but in those years, it was really in the level of single cells. That is true. It's not that biologists were not characterizing individual cells before. They've actually been doing it for many decades, more than hundred years in semi-systematic way, but they didn't have the ability to look at something that was comprehensive and they didn't have the ability to do it at sufficient scale. So again, the scale and the richness, high-resolution, massive scale, is something that is extremely important to answer difficult questions.
0: And the depth of the information too, right? Like RNA-Seq is, is like transcriptomics tells you so much.
2: So much. Before you had to you had to choose breadth or depth, you could look at a lot of cells, but you would be able to ask about one variable or two variables. And it was bespoke and you had to build the system and techniques and so on every time you wanted to ask a question. Or you could look at one cell and get a, a, one cell or one sample and get rich information, but you might not be able to look at individual cells. You would have to look at them in the bulk. That was kind of the trade off. And people lived with the trade off because that's what they could do. All of a sudden, you could have your cake and eat it too. Yeah. And these two things become particularly material when I pull my third thing that happened, and that's deep learning. Yes. Ah. So for those of us who've been in machine learning before deep learning and after deep learning, we actually know it's different. It feels very different, but its impact has not just been due to an algorithmic advance, although, you know, absolutely also due to an algorithmic advance, but it was a trifecta. There's algorithms, there's data, and there's compute. And that trifecta was happening in other domains, right? They had algorithms and they had compute, but they also had data. There was enough data for vision problems, enough data for text problems, enough data for speech problems... In the beginning, when deep learning was arriving on the scene 2012 or so, there wasn't enough data for biological problems. Like when I put that hat on, there wasn't really. Mm. But the ability to measure at that scale with single cell genomics gave us like again and again and again and again. And on top of that, to do causal interventions, which is what CRISPR allows us to do, makes it like just perfection. Yeah. Machine learning. And on top of that, when you can do things at scale and you have the tools you can iterate. And iteration is really the, the, the heart of the game. So it takes it takes years for all of these things to fully materialize. And what was really fun for me is that I got to say, yeah, that's what I wanted all along. Now I'm just going to go and do it. You have a trifecta. You really have to use it. You can't wait. You, you have to see it happen. And it's, it's just being lucky to be at a moment in time where things, some things you are doing and they synergize with some things that other people are doing and you have the skill and you have the people and you have the resources and you have the environment and it's like there and you just run with it.
0: You know, with that said, I actually am a firm believer that luck is something you, you engineer as well, right? Now, as all this stuff is coming at you, you have to know enough to grab it, right? It is so
2: easy for something amazing to happen right next to you and you say, "Well, I'm busy doing what I'm doing." Right. <laughs> At
1: yeah. the same
2: time, you don't want to have, you know, the, the equivalent of basically an attention disorder yeah. in science, and then you would not do anything. So that requires some judgment. I agree; it's not just luck, but something has to happen around you. And things don't happen on a, you know, uniformly. There's moments in time when they happen, and there's moments in time when they don't. The key is to distinguish between them.
0: You no, know, when I think about people I view as the best scientists or the best artists or best musicians you know what they all seem to have in common is this really good sense of good taste you know they can pick the right problems and the right solutions and like how did you know like how did you know you look at this I'm like oh this is the thing I do and then this is a thing maybe it's not as interesting it's obvious in hindsight but how did you know that Well,
2: first of all, even in hindsight, it might be obvious that you made some choices that led to good things, but you didn't do some things and they might have led to things that are even better. Who knows? I kind of enjoyed what I've done. I feel it has had value. I'm trying to continue maximizing the impact and what I do, but I never know whether it's the optimal decision. I never (laughs) will know. And that's just life.
0: You still have to make a decision. So you must have some sense in that moment. Like, why did you. It was my
2: sense of what I what my mission is, what my problem is.
0: But what's intriguing to me is that you you made it very clear that the mission was constant. I mean, maybe you could sort of clarify what was the mission in your mind? I mean, what was your North Star?
2: I always wanted to understand how cells work and how they break down, how they do it. You know, for many years, I just thought of cells kind of as their own entity. At some point, it broadened a little bit and figuring out how they operate in the tissue. But it's the same thing. I always thought of them as these, very interesting computational devices. So I want to understand how they operate. I want to be able to reconstruct them. I want to be able to predict them. And probably my big motivation moving to the Broad from, or rather choosing Broad and MIT over other options was that they had this attached mission in medicine. And I had the belief that at that moment in time, there's nothing I can do yet about it. But if this problem gets figured out well enough, then it would actually be impactful for patients So,
0: yeah. Yeah, no, that's very beautiful. It's very clean. I'm curious, especially with you coming in with both a biologist and a computational mindset. You know, when you think about like CRISPR and RNA-seq and especially spatial RNA-seq, it feels like you finally can modify the code. You can finally debug it to some degree, right? You have more than a few printf's. You can kind of have a much more global sense of things. How much did your computer science mindset affect your biology? Is it just a beautiful analogy or does it go deeper than that?
2: No, this is causal inference.
0: Mm, yeah.
2: Except that you have the huge benefit in biology that you can actually do causal interventions, and you know that they are causal. So, for listeners who might not be like spending all their time thinking about biological systems, it's because there is a a, a directionality from our genome to the business end, to yes. the actions, and it is except for in evolution, it is a one way street. Evolution is different; there's selection, and then things change in the genome, but otherwise it's a one-way street. So that causal interventions, that's genetics, allow you to actually do an intervention, see what happens, and you know the direction. You don't know how, that's mechanism, and that's very hard. That's why you also have to have ways that give you rich enough information, then you can try and figure out the mechanism. But that is a computational way of thinking where computation and biology are cleanly aligned from each other. And then experimental biology makes you able to do this in an iterative way. You can perturb the system causally using genetics, see what happens, develop a model, use that model to design your next experiment and repeat. It's just that in order to be able to really iterate effectively like this, you need to work at high scale And historically, our tools were not built for that. They were like non-iterative. The idea was you would do it once. That is it. If you're not in experimental biology and you really want to impact human medicine, you have to rely on the variation that nature has given you. That is called population genetics. There's so much genetic variation in people. Your only challenge is that in each person, there's many, many, many things happening all at once. So you have a big combinatorial problem and it explodes like big time. And again, this is why the advances in machine learning all of a sudden make the problem tractable.
0: Wow. So now 10 years later from this uh, 2012 yeah. uh, moment that you're highlighting, um, what would you say are the highlights of what, what came of all that?
2: Yeah. So so I think, uh, well, actually multiple things. So I, I'll start by, by saying I actually think it shifted the conceptual way in which people think about cells in many, many ways. For example, we tended to put more discrete categorizations around them, and we know that that is actually too crude of an approach for many, many of the biological events that are actually happening. We had to do it discreetly before. We can look at it continuously now, and we do, and we find new things that we didn't see before. You can actually build now a foundational model in biology. In cell biology, you can. That is thanks to the efforts of initiatives like the Human Cell Atlas that said, yeah, there's a lot of them, but we're not afraid. We're going to get a really good sense of what cells are there and we would make it into something we used to call it like a periodic table of the cell like a nickname yeah. so that it wouldn't just be that we would be able to say here are all the things we measured here's the catalog we would be able to predict things that we haven't seen oh, and wow. foundational models that's what they let you do they don't just define the realm of what you've done but they actually let you say within what you've done and ideally out of distribution this is what i think should be there here are the holes that i can fill for you not just by measuring everything yourself so That's to me, like the pinnacle. So we found cells we didn't know existed. Like together with my colleague, Jay Rajagopal, we found cells that we now call the pulmonary ionocyte. They are incredibly rare. They're in your lung and airways. They are the cell in which the CF gene, the cystic fibrosis gene, CFTR is expressed. In the 30 years between geneticists figuring out that's the gene that causes the disease, And our studies and those of Alon Klein and Aaron Jaffe, in those 30 years, for the whole period of time, they thought it was expressed in some other cell, which is common and abundant, and it's not expressed in at all. So, yeah, that was cool. There's many stories like that by many people, and they are materially important. Because if you think about the cell therapy for CF, and you don't know the correct cell, it's not going to be useful. Same is true with gene therapy. You actually yeah. need to know the cell. We found mechanisms by which, um, you know, tumors develop resistance or patients stop responding to anti-TNF therapy and inflammatory bowel disease. Other people found other things. There is galore stories like that. When we think today about a target in a disease, we know we can say in which cells it's acting. We couldn't Mm -hmm. before, not off the top of our head. And we often guessed wrong. If people are thinking about desiring cells with particular properties, for example, they're in regenerative medicine, they're trying to make cells of particular kinds. Well, you can now index it to what the cells are really like in the human body. It's not like an imaginary thing. You just can do that. And if you're interested in how cells work, you now have a huge observational and because of human variation, also perturbational data set from which you can do inference and say these genes are controlling, these genes are controlling these genes. So I have a model how the system works and I can go and perturb it. I can go on and on and on, (laughs) go and talk a little bit more about medicine. I can say even more, but yeah, it's changing. It's changing. It's like, it's like seeing everything at high resolution and technicolor instead of a blurry black and white picture. So it's it's a big change.
0: Well, and you've mentioned causality many times, and I think that's such a critical concept here because our interventions, i.e. drugs or therapies, are intended to be causal agents, but then we have to understand how, well, how the causality works. Yeah. And this is very difficult to do in very classic biology, and especially difficult to do in human biology since you couldn't do experiments on humans very easily. You could do maybe human cell lines and so on. But to be able to understand that means you shift from just trying things out to really having what we would consider to be understanding of biology.
2: Yeah. When I think of the big things that are going to transform medicine, one of the big ones is what we call human biology. Mm -hmm. And it is the ability to really understand what is happening in humans, in patients, not in a model, not in a cell line. It's also the ability to know how close is the lab model. This is not necessarily a computational model. Often it's a physical model, cell lines growing, culture, organoids, and so on. How close versus how different it is from the human. And this is not a yes, no answer. This is a question where in some aspects it's very similar, in others it might not be modeling well. Knowing that allows you to use the model well. The cliche, all models are wrong, some are useful, is actually a useful cliche. It's true for lab models as well. But this reference allows you to really know where you are. You're not like in the dark, just trying to figure out and guessing and just getting used essentially to the model and forgetting where the patient is.
0: Yeah, no, that, that suggests a very obvious uh, meta-cliché, which is all clichés are are wrong and some are useful. But, uh, <laughs>
1: exactly. <laughs> which I'm going <laughs> to totally say next time.
0: <laughs> so then you actually move and I, I believe you're on leave, but like you, you pick up and move to the West Coast. You you come to Roche Genentech, a huge giant in the space. What was the thinking there and what's your role now um, out here on the West Coast.
2: So I sometimes tell people, listen to your frustrations. I was very happy where I was. I mean, I love the world. Bar- I love MIT. I still do. I was also at the Howard Hughes Medical Institute, and I'm extremely grateful to them as well. So credit where credit is due. But I would say probably for my last three years when I was there, I was increasingly feeling that remember I had one mission. It was still the same one, but that the medical impact is really is really now. It's not like somewhere in the future, it's now. Yes. And I did all sorts of things to try and see if I can, if I can kind of connect that, that piece together. So I started a couple of companies and really with this strong human biology bent with the clinicians, including the surgeons and the pathologists and so on, the people who are really treating patients and trying to understand what is happening to patients in their disease, the disease biology, the course of the disease, the response to drugs and so on. And while being really in the most fantastic place in the world for my original goal, which is really understand how cells work and so on, it was increasingly obvious, becoming increasingly clear to me that it was the most fantastic place for that goal. But that's not the same as acting on the findings that you Mm. make. (laughs) And I really wanted to. I felt like, yeah, but we can bring this and change how we actually make the medicines themselves, the drugs. And... Related to that was the sense learned also from, you know, getting more and more involved in small companies and so on. Small companies are amazing. They are really a good vehicle for one part of a problem. Like, I'm just going to solve that thing. And all my efforts are focused in that one thing. But this problem in medicine is unfortunately made of many, many, many problems. Yes. So, you know, finding the right targets is a problem. Making the right molecules or cell therapy or vaccine or whatever that's a problem. And figuring out the right patients is a problem, actually figuring out the right disease, the right indication is a problem, and then the right patient. All of these things are hard. All of these things succeed at, you know, really low probability. I say that again, I know a lot of technical people listen to this. In machine learning, we sometimes are busy optimizing from the 90% to the 95%, (laughs) from the 95% to the 98%. It's amazing. In drug discovery, you're like in the 10%. That's considered to be a superbly successful organization. Well,
0: especially for late stage stuff. I mean, maybe yeah. for... So yeah, the whole thing, to-
2: ah, but there's no other exit strategy. If you really yes. want to make medicines, <laughs> yes. your only exit strategy is a drug that patients actually receive every single day. Yep. That's for me, the ultimate one. I want actual things that people can be treated with.
0: Sometimes a, a shift in environment and scale uh, allows you to do very different things and potentially yeah. much more impactful things. Now that we've gotten to the present, like how does all this come together like what are you doing? what are you excited about what, what you're doing yeah. today
2: so we we think of this as having four major we call them multiplicative levers, things that are like catalysts right you put in a certain amount but you want to get something that's at least at least multiplicative would have been nice if it were exponential but yes. I would totally go for multiplicative um at least multiplicative in terms of the impact that you get ultimately. And what I think is so special right now is that it's not one, it's not two, it's not three, it's four things that are all converging at the same moment in time. So the first one is really this human biology. We just talked about it at length, so I'm just not repeating. It's, human is our model organism because human is our ultimate target. We want to, we want to treat, we want to cure
0: humans. Absolutely.
2: Yeah. The, the second one is these high-resolution, massive-scale methods, when quantity becomes quality. Not just that they allow us to do more, not only do they allow us to do more, but for, say, a marginally added investment. So it's not just we need 10,000 times more resources in order to get 10,000 times more yeah. results. Yeah. That's not helpful. They're truly scaled. But we know, just like the example with the foundational models for sales, that when we get to a certain scale, We actually are in a completely qualitatively different domain in terms of the kinds of predictions that we can make, in terms of the generative capacity of models, all of those important things that we need in order to make medicine.
0: Yeah. And by the way, I've never heard that phrase, when quantity becomes quality before. It's so beautiful.
2: You are welcome to use it. Yeah. And by the way, when quantity becomes quality, the individual measurement does not need to be so great. Single RNA as an individual measurement, oh my God, it's poor. We sample a random 5% of the RNA in the cell, tons of noise, issues from here, issues from there. But the volume, basically, just the quantity of it makes all of it melt away with the kind help of algorithms. That's basically it. And by the way, the internet is the same. It's filled with yes. <laughs> In the olden days, yeah. you know, when search engines first came on the scene, people were like totally obsessed with the worry about the quality. No one thinks about it anymore because we figured it out with algorithms. Yes, so, for the yeah, most part. We are actually rethinking about that because of the issues we have with social media, but that's a, that's a story for another sure. day.
0: So that was two things, right? And I think you had four. Yeah.
2: Third thing it, we talked about at great length is computation. And I say it writ large because remember algorithms and machine learning. And the fourth one is uh, the therapeutic modalities. So making medicines is a generative process. You're making something that doesn't exist in the world. In that sense, it's very different than scientific discovery, which is you're figuring out how something that exists in the world works. Here, we're actually making new things. So it's a generative process. Now, you can look at each of these things separately, but the real hard part is putting them together. So that putting them together which for lab-based work, we call lab-in-a-loop. If it's with the clinic, we call it clinic-in-a-loop. That's actually when it gets really hard. And that's, that's the fun part, too. I'm not saying anything specific about us, but in a field where the typical numbers are 10 to 20% all the way through, there's so much room for improvement. It's amazing to be in something like that. It's like there's huge room for improvement. When you're at 96%, it starts getting really hard. So I, I'm still on the, I'm a realistic optimist.
0: Well, and let me ask you one devil's advocate question. So it's very, very appealing intellectually to say, we want to understand the cell. And then there's so much to learn. Do you feel that, uh, there's enough disease biology that's recapitulated by cellular phenotypes and cellular biology, or do we have to go like higher and higher scale? Do we need, at what point is it enough scale?
2: So first of all, it really depends on the disease. In biology, the answer is always, it really depends. What's the context? What's the disease? And so on. I think cells are useful on their own. But I actually think when you talk about cells, you don't talk about them on their own. You talk about them next to the other cells, in the tissue, in the organ, in the patient. So it's not that you're looking just at that level of organization, but it is the basic unit of life, so you're also not ignoring that level of organization. Second, especially for machine learning folks, Working at multiple scales through which have, are nominally very different from each other is in with substantial nonlinear transformations. That's the heart of biology, and that's what has been extraordinarily painful in biology in the past. So, for example, you can look at molecules, then you can look at cells, then you can look at tissues, then you can look at um, organs, then you have the whole body, and then you have physiological phenotypes that are multiple you have ecosystems. And <laughs> when
0: yeah,
2: you are th- in the cell, you can look at it through its molecular lens, you can look at its shape and morphology, so now you have multiple views of the same entity. But in the end, there's only one patient. That's what I always say. What's amazing now, when quantity becomes quality, is that with algorithms, you can actually relate these things pretty impressively more and more today.
0: Yeah. Well, and that that takes us finally to sort of, that probably is the ultimate realization of your mission, right? That understanding not just how cells work or human cells work, but like how my cells work, you know, as a patient or your cells work as a patient and taking care of our specific issues.
2: True. But you would very much want to do it in the context of a foundational model that generalizes. Because if I think about the economics of medicine and about caring for patients and about caring for patients all over the world in areas that have radically different resources, then the more we understand the generalizations, the better off we are. We want to be personalized and general at the same time. That's one of these very good tensions to address.
0: Well, well said. So we're about to run out of time. So I just want to ask ask you, if I may, one a somewhat personal question, which is what you do for your own health.
2: I have a family.
0: Yes. I have yes. two
2: kids. I actually am really serious when I say that. People often describe like work-life balance as a problem. I could never understand why. I think that's the best thing that you have. It's like the best activity, the coolest stuff. They teach you something new every day. They make you do all sorts of weird things you would never think of doing on your own, so that is the thing I would highlight, really above all, that makes life the best.
0: Thank you so much for joining us on BioEats World.
2: This was so much fun. It made me think also on some things in new ways.
0: Oh, you had so many great lines there. It's like I look forward to doing it again.
2: Thank you, Vijay.
1: Thank you for joining BioEats World. BioEats World is hosted and produced by me, Olivia Webb, with the help of the bio and health team at A16Z, and edited by Phil Hegseth. BioEats World is part of the A16Z podcast network. If you have questions about the episode or want to suggest topics for a future episode, please email bioeatsworld at A16Z.com. Last but not least, if you're enjoying BioEats World, please leave us a rating and review wherever you listen to podcasts. The content here is for informational purposes only, should not be taken as legal, business, tax, or investment advice, or be used to evaluate any investment or security, and is not directed at any investors or potential investors in any A16Z fund. Please note that A16Z and its affiliates may maintain investments in the companies discussed in this podcast. For more details, including a link to our investments, please see A16Z.com disclosures.